And of course, the response that sometimes from LPs that are just unfortunately a little bit clueless is, well, that's okay. Like it's just going to accrue and then I'll get paid later. And the problem is like, you're right on the first part, it does accrue. On the second part, you might not get paid later. Welcome to the TCO Method, the only show focused on helping you massively increase your net operating income. I am Andy McQuaid, and thank you so much for tuning in to this special interview episode with my guest, Alexei Chernobelsky. He has this insane background that I'm going to read off right now, and you guys are going to, your brains are going to melt. All right. So currently, Alexei is advising LPs, limited partners, right? Investors on existing and future investments, specifically Probably mostly syndications, but we'll get into that. That's right. He writes weekly on his Substack called lplessons.substack.com. Write that down. To 1,500 investors so far, that list is constantly growing. And he helps explain how to do your research to vet and how you need to think about your LP investments in your portfolio. He helps GPs, general partners, on matters relating to LPs like how to frame capital calls, and he provides feedback on their investment decks. Prior to doing all of this crazy advisory work, he ran Store Capital's $10 billion commercial real estate portfolio, oversaw the firm's underwriting team, and his educational background is nuts. He graduated (laughs) from the University of Arizona with a quadruple major, which just makes my eyes bleed thinking about it because I'm that ADHD guy that just, no, that's not happening. Finance, mathematics, economics, and accounting. So born for Excel spreadsheets and numbers. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) Alexi, thank you so much, so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, Your background is insane. And there's, there's a saying in life that I, that I adhere to is if you're the smartest person in a room, you need to find another room. I don't know that there's a room that exists where you wouldn't be the smartest guy in the room. So what do you do with that? Like, that's nuts. Um, I can tell you I've been in many, many rooms where I wasn't by far. And um, those are the best rooms. I, I remember uh, actually, you know, uh, when, when I got interviewed at store, I met the founder, Chris Volk. And um, after about you know, a five minute interview, he said, I think you're going to be like one of the smartest people here. But before that, he went through like a bunch of examples on the business. And to be candid, like I understood probably 50% of it. So I came out of the interview and I just like told my wife, like I called my wife right away. I said, I'm not sure if I'm going to get that. But if I do, this is going to be amazing because I just love being around people that are much smarter than me. (laughs) So so do I. So I, I, I feel that <laughs> completely. Thank you so much for joining me again. And I, I guess the first question is, all this finance background, you could have done anything, gone anywhere in corporate America, and you, you chose real estate. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, so I actually started uh, away from real estate. So I, I've more or less always been on the buy side, uh, but really started with high frequency trading, if that means anything to you. So like algorithms, um, I did that in Israel. Then I did a little bit of distressed debt, 
a little bit of like private equity and venture capital work for a family office in, in New York, and then a little bit of consulting for the C-suite of Accenture. And then I got married and that actually took me to Arizona. And so uh, although I've had quite a few experiences with real estate indirectly and, and sometimes directly, uh, my first real real estate touch was at Store Capital, you know, that interview that I was thankful to uh, to get an offer for. And I did pretty well there. And ultimately, like like you said, uh, ended up running the portfolio that they had. I think by the time I left, well, close close to 3,000 properties, maybe 2,900 or something like that all across the U.S. And it was a 20-person team that, that essentially looked at managing that whole portfolio of real estate assets all across the U.S., but also uh, underwrote new ones. So any new transaction that came in came through my team. And my um, goal in every single sense of the word it was figure out whether the risk reward makes sense on a given transaction, right? Like hypothetically, we had endless money as a public company to buy anything we wanted. But of course, the risk reward balance is really important because you want to buy things that are good for your shareholders and, and over a long period of time that that ends up showing. So um, my team was tasked with putting together investment memos. I sat on an investment committee and, and uh, restructured a bunch of deals. Um, so yeah, it, it was like, uh, in, in a way, looking back, I mean, first of all, it was just like a phenomenal experience and I learned a lot. But now that I'm in this new role that, I, you know, the new venture that I founded, I'm realizing how helpful that experience was in framing a lot of things that I write about today. Absolutely. I mean, your content is great. The Twitter and LinkedIn stuff that you put out is amazing. And um, your Substack has really taken off. How long ago did you launch that? And you're at 1500 subs already? Uh, three months. I think now I'm at 1760 or something like that. 1770. I, I can't remember. That's insane. Congratulations. That is awesome. Yeah. You know, it, it's, um, it's an interesting niche. Um, I think there's a lot of limited partners out there that really want to learn more. And I, I feel like it's a very interesting balance of, of both being a very highly capitalized space. In other words, you have limited partners that have made tremendous amounts of money, typically in non-real estate pursuits. And yet they generally don't know what to look out for, right? So uh, I'll have you know, several calls a week that, you know, I, I this is where like the, the the entire genesis of of the Substack on my blog was, I have calls with a bunch of people that either learn some hard earned lessons, right, or they just call me about a new transaction and they're like, wow, like I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know that this was a problem. I didn't know this was a problem. And whenever I hear comments like that, I just think, well, chances are like a lot of people don't know whether that's bad or good. So I just write about it, you know, and, and so in, in a sense, a lot of my advisory work is uh, obviously everything is anonymized. It's all sort of um, content for me to, to oh, speak yeah. about and, and help other people uh, without mentioning the GP and without mentioning the LP, of course, or, or the deal even. Um, but but there's, there's a lot to learn from. Absolutely. I do the same thing. I'll tell stories on the show they have no idea who that customer was or, or what the property was I was talking about. Yeah. So I guess my, my next little block of topics that I'd like to cover are just very much related to everything you do. That's why you're on the show. And the audience is 
Uh, we talked briefly about it, but the audience is largely made up of real estate investors. There's not a lot of people who are listening to this show for anything other than that. Um, and uh, it is very much focused on helping people not light money on fire. I support that message. <laughs> um, this is a little bit of a, of a, of a sidetrack for me because I, I don't directly deal with the financials as far as underwriting deals or anything like that outside of the numbers have to work and they have to be realistic. Like projecting 5 to 8 to 15% rent increases year over year for the entire pro forma period is insanity and it's not sustainable and there's never been an economic cycle that has supported it for longer than a few years. Yes, you strike while the iron's hot, but you can't just have it ad infinitum and expect it to work out for you. Bad things will eventually happen, which is what we're seeing now. So the last couple of years with ZERP and all the other stuff, a decade of bad policy has created the ability or did create the ability for a lot of companies to develop bad business models, and then stay afloat because capital was basically free. Sure. Um, now we're seeing that kind of abruptly and painfully come to an end for many, like we work, right? And, you know, is it mismanagement? Is it fraud? Is it willful ignorance? I don't have those answers, but maybe you do. But the reality is that I am a firm believer that everybody has the right to be an entrepreneur and to go into business and to make money and to be successful. Yeah. Just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. <laughs> um, so the, what we're seeing now is we're seeing people, LPs largely, who have been traditionally looked at as dumb money, right? Or stupid money, however you want to say it. I've seen it referenced yeah. that way multiple times. Not by you. You've been very polite about not framing people in a negative light for not understanding the investments they're making, um, which is a very careful, very rocky road. And I don't think I would do very well with that because I'm a little <laughs> bit more blunt than that. Um, but there's this, this, this feeling that LPs and silent partners are not always the most business savvy. And that can be true. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what, what are the biggest mistakes that you've seen and I know you've written some amazing articles and made them free for people to read. But what, where are the biggest mistakes that you've seen from like, you know, 2019, 2020 till now that, you know, they're coming knocking at the door saying, we don't want to take this property back, but we're going to take this property back. Like how, how, how is that going? Capital calls, pause distributions, cash in refis. What are we looking at? as far as rescue capital and, and the mistake side. Sure. So I, I took a few notes. Um, I'll try to address everything uh, kind of like maybe we'll, we'll try to weave it together. And obviously you can stop me if, if you want to pause on something. So I, you started on rent increases, which I think is an interesting topic. The, the way that I always like to explain this to LPs is there's nothing, I, and I, I genuinely believe this, there's nothing wrong with assuming constant 15% rent increases as long as the LP realizes that that might not happen. Meaning it could happen, and, and we've certainly seen it happen in some areas, and, and there's probably justification for it to happen in certain areas in the U.S. for the next few years. We just don't know that it'll happen yet. So I, I never take issue with uh, really any assumptions 
um, as long as the assumptions are sensitized. Uh, and, and as long as the LP goes into a transaction understanding what will happen if this doesn't work out? And, and the way that I, this kind of ties back into the biggest mistakes, probably one of them is not understanding downside catalysts. Uh, and, and I always tell people, A, if you don't have the time to do due diligence on a deal, you probably shouldn't be investing. Uh, in fact, not probably. I mean, I, I would say it's stronger. I think you shouldn't. Uh, unless, of course, you have like direct real estate or investing experience that's very deep. And secondly, um, you, you should really take time to understand what, uh, let's say, three things can go wrong that will have the maximum impact on your returns. Th this is the, the universe I deal with. And every single person that I speak to are extremely bright. I mean, in some cases, I get calls, hey, I'm, I'm selling a business. I'm going to have $50 million liquid. You know, can you uh, can you help me think through some stuff? And it's like, wow! Like, meaning you're dealing with people that are extremely sophisticated. It, it's just that they didn't make their money through real estate, and and what they don't realize is when they 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 look at a deck, and the deck says, you know, like, look, passive income. Like, you, you don't have to do anything. Uh, it might even say eight percent pref, um, but they forget that that the pref comes from the same LLC that operates the property. Mm -hmm. And the PREF is only going to be paid if um, and when the cash is there. And sometimes the PREF gets stopped. Uh, the PREF still accrues, but I'm saying the cash disbursements can get stopped. And of course, the response that so sometimes from LPs that are just, unfortunately, a little bit clueless is, well, that's okay. Like, it's just going to accrue and then I'll get paid later. And the problem is, like, you're right on the first part, it does accrue. On the second part, you might not get paid later. It just depends what's going to happen. And so so that framework of uh, what, what I like to call it is verify then trust, as opposed to trust then verify, is pretty, um, it was missing. And the, I, I don't know how else to say it. I think people got excited. And, and to be frank, some people made a lot of money in syndications over the past few years. And uh, and things got pretty exciting, so they just kept going. But, you know, you don't want to be there when the music stopped. I think that's what we're seeing right now, is the music has definitely stopped. And now there's signs that it might be restarting, but we're not going to get ahead of ourselves just yet. So when they're looking at these deals, and they're trying to decide yes or no, I, I love the fact that you said maybe if you don't understand it, you shouldn't be investing in it. That's kind of, kind of huge. And I think in all things, even real estate, people don't know what they don't know right? Half of what I do is highlighting things that other companies have done that have worked. And, you know, you see the light bulb go off and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah I guess that does make sense. But I never thought about it that way. Like, you know, it could be something stupid, like yeah. change of batteries and smoke detectors. Well, how much does that cost you in labor every year? Oh, I didn't really think about that. Okay, well, it's costing you a lot of money every year. Maybe you should go to something that you don't have to change batteries in every year, pay a little more now, save, save over time. So yeah, when you're I guess, advising people who are calling you and they're looking at a syndication or they're looking at a, a, an LP for a different business venture, outside of not understanding the numbers or not understanding that side of the business, where are you seeing like the biggest red flags? Like this is missing. And, you know, if, if this investor had known this ahead of time or not been sold the bill of goods, like I don't really want to talk about the fraud 
thing and the you know the improper advertising and the sec crap like that's still to be decided and yeah it's going to be a mess no matter what uh, let me I'll, let, let's touch on fraud just for a second uh, i think it's important um i i think cases of true fraud are are pretty rare and and they're scary but uh, but again I, I think the chances of getting into a real fraud is pretty minimal um as long as you do what i would call like baseline due diligence and I would even say, obviously, this isn't uh, a promise, but but to the extent that someone looks at my, I have an article called like top 15 syndication mistakes. If, if someone looks at that article, they understand everything in there, which is, you know, written pretty simple English. If, if you don't understand anything that's in there, then I don't think you should be investing. Now, if if you do, and and you've sort of vetted all of those things, then I think the chances of a fraud are like very, very low. Uh, you know, anyone can do anything at, at some point, but like getting through those 15 things and not finding something is like actually pretty impressive, I think. Uh, and most deals will at least have one or three things on there that um, are perhaps borderline. And And the way that I phrased that article was very... It was it was with a lot of intent. Like I, I don't think those things, the fifteen mistakes, so to speak, are are not red flags because every single investment, at the end of the day, needs to be compared to other investments, whether it be real estate or something else. And I, what I called it is sort of fifteen reasons to pause and think. In other words, if if someone doesn't have a track record, that's okay. You, you should just know that they don't. And and something else, so to speak, all else equal, has to compensate and make you comfortable. So, so I mean, that, that's a little bit on fraud. Um, I think uh, the reality is, and, and I'll go into you know the, the 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 second topic that you mentioned in a second. But where where things get pretty difficult is what I would call a poor alignment of interest uh, mixed with ignorance. Like uh, th- those two things can become pretty dangerous. In other words, we're not talking about cases of people misappropriating funds. Uh, we're just talking about people that are either ignorant or over, overly optimistic uh, or inexperienced, sometimes a combination of all the three. And Too dumb to get, in the, to get out of their own way? Yeah, and, uh, but, but in a sense, like, I actually I have a lot of respect for people that, that try things, especially now that I'm, like, I'm starting a business. Right. It's, it's, it's hard. Oh, it you is. Know? And, and I have a lot of respect for people who try things. But I think there's a big difference between trying something and being transparent about the fact that you're trying something and trying something and sort of like pushing out a totally different image for marketing purposes. There's a lot of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think um, the best way I think I can answer your, your you know, biggest mistakes question just in, as, a, as a function of what's happening today. Um, what's the common thread across people that I'm advising that you have either lost all of their investment or some of it or are getting capital calls? I think probably 75% of it has to do with alignment of interests. And and 25% of it has to do with just vetting the sponsor. So and I, I wrote pretty lengthy three three pieces of, of the you know the, the, the path that I uh, suggest for folks to follow. It might surprise some people that the last one, the number three of three, and it's in order, is the property. In other words, when you're investing in a syndication, in my opinion, the last thing you should look at 
is the property you're investing in, which might sound like insane to some people. But I think in many situations, you'll get through one and two and actually not even get to the property because there's so many things that you have questions on or uncomfortable with. Now, number one is execution, which, you know, many topics to discuss there, but more or less, that's like, that's a pillar that revolves around, can they actually execute, right? Which is partially track record, partially trust, a few other things that I mentioned, right? So uh, there was definitely a lot of that missing. Like people just said, yeah, look, well, this guy seems like a nice guy and or a gal and well, look at them like they're trying to help the housing problem. Like, why, mm-hmm. why shouldn't I trust them? And I think my argument could be like the exact opposite. Like, why should you trust them? And until someone uh, has performed, there's no reason why you should trust them. And, and I think that's normal. You know, they might be nice and they might have a nice smile and whatever and talk nicely and dress nicely. They, they, by the way, like we're, while we're on this topic, they might also have lots of followers. They might also mm-hmm. like be very famous. They might be a family member of yours. Uh, but all of those reasons are not reason to invest or trust someone. They're just uh, what I would call a reason to look into the transaction, right? And, and those things should not bias you to, to invest. Now, the second pillar is what I would call alignment of interest. And that, that touches on a lot of different topics, but broadly speaking, it's co-invest, i.e. how much is the GP investing alongside the LP? And then the other thing is the waterfall. In other words, what happens if things go south? So, so the first thing is the co-invest. In other words, like how much money do they have at stake? Uh, how does that relate to their sort of net worth as a person? And is it a meaningful amount? And then second is, uh, okay, so now that I know that they're invested, what practically happens to the economics if things go south? In other words, who gets paid first? What happens? Uh, do, is there a return of capital clause, which is like a whole topic I can spend a lot of time on, because I was shocked to see that some some agreements don't have it in there. But but I, I think that is a big theme, Andy, is people forget that this is a transaction, and uh, but in an investment investments are risky sometimes things don't work out and the best thing you can do for yourself is to know that if things don't work out you're being taken care of by someone who's incentivized to do something about it right um and and those incentives and those conversations have to happen day zero because as soon as day one begins it's already too late and like they can just stop answering your emails yeah the the ink is dry at that point they have your money you're just going to deal with what you get yeah, it's totally. You know, there's always the horror stories, right? To every every story has two sides, and there's the doom and gloomers, you know, catastrophists, and the everything's fine, rainbows and sunshine and butterflies and rose-colored glasses, whatever. The concern that I have is seeing people getting into these syndications and being like, "Oh, it's real estate; it's a safe investment because there's an asset." Well, you're an LP. Is there an asset really for you? Maybe. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's just evaporates, right? Maybe there's nothing for you. Oh, well, I can claim depreciation on my taxes. Do you have reps? Are you a full-time real estate professional doing more than 750 hours a year, doing more than 51% at that property? Can you claim depreciation? No, but you think you can because you listen to 15-second snippets on LinkedIn or on Instagram where they 
say, hey, join my thing, and this is what you can take advantage of in very specific circumstances. Maybe if you're lucky, you can make all that stuff work out as an LP. However, <laughs> not understanding the deal is the crux of a lot of these issues, I think. Yeah, so I think two comments there. Um, I, I think you subtly mentioned courses. Uh, join my thing. Uh, it might be courses, might be newsletters. I always try to remind people that uh, all of those things are great. Uh, I have no problem with them. I, I think with anything, though, an investor needs to be mindful of conflict of conflict of interest. In other words, if an industrial GP is telling you that a multifamily sucks, that might be true, or they might just be sort of like um, diverting your capital to an asset class that they happen to be a GP in, wink, wink. Right. Um, if a multifamily, you know, owner tells you like, oh, my gosh, there's such a housing crisis, we're going to help solve it. I mean, I have general thoughts about that as, as a comment, but pu putting that aside, th that also is like, you know, that's sort of like an appeal to emotion. And it happens to be that the person that's telling you that is also like a multifamily syndicator. Now, again, I have no issues with that. And, and some of those comments and hypotheses that are being made are true and they're well thought out but as an investor you just have to again like i like to say pause and think and be like what am i being told and and what is the bias of the person in front of me mm -hmm. so i i just think it's it's important to to think about those things and and as as far as um taxes i mean i i see some some decks and actually i'm in the middle of writing an entire article on um the the hidden what is it called hidden Hidden risks of property benefits, I think is the name. <laughs> property tax benefits, yeah. It's a good name. In, in, if you know anything about it, it's a really <laughs> yeah, good and, name. And so I think uh, to your point, oh, I, I see a lot of people get into things. Oh, like I'm going to I'm gonna have a crazy W-2 year. I'm going to offset my income. And uh, so many things happen. Like a GP forgets to do the cost seg or doesn't do it on time, mm -hmm. or or perhaps to your point, like they don't have any passive income, which is different than your W-2 income. I, I didn't go on and on. I mean, I, I have like a whole article on this. I think people just forget that, you know, tax benefits, they're great, uh, but they're they're not always free, right? Um, and, I, and I think it's important to go into a transaction with, with a solid perspective of, of what could happen. I agree. And I think that's um, hugely valuable what you're bringing to everybody is it's it's giving them information that maybe they don't have a source for because they don't have a lot of real estate contacts, right? Browse LinkedIn for five minutes and scroll your feed. If you're connected to real estate people, you're going to see airline pilot that's helping people invest in real estate as a syndicator. You're going to see doctors, you're going to see dentists, you're going to see lawyers, you're going to see all these different people working W-2s, having great careers focusing on helping those other people come into the fold so they can make some money while still working their W-2, you know, draw a check, be an LP, do all this other stuff. It's great, except for these are not people who are real estate natives either. So you have to trust the source. And how do you do that when they don't have a, a vetted background, right? So for me, it's a red flag when I hear people, you know, on Instagram or whatever being like, oh, tax benefits, own real estate. Oh, well, even if everything falls apart and the investment fails, you still have an asset. You might not, actually. And you, you need to follow the money. That's what I tell people all the time is when you're listening to somebody who's trying to sell you something, when you're, you're listening to somebody who's doing a podcast or doing a whatever, 
what's their goal? Why are they doing it? Where's the money going? And, and, and why do they want you to be involved? Or why are they, they pitching this to you? It always comes down to where's the capital? Where is that money gonna be? And how does it influence them? When we hear these nightmare stories of the people who are getting into these syndications and getting into these investments, and now there's capital calls, and the capital call is, I think it might have been one of your examples where the capital call is, uh, we need you to give us another X number of tens of thousands of dollars, so you might get 40% of your original investment back, or you get 100% of nothing. Those are the situations that now people are going, oh my God, I had no idea. I need somebody to scapegoat and blame. So I want to do this SEC lawsuit or I want to do this lawsuit or Grant Cardone is great big asshole, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. How, how do people like if they, they're not involved in real estate and they're bad at Google, right? Because obviously a lot of people had to have been bad at Google because this is not something that's new. This has started, the snowball started 12 months ago in some cases where should people be looking other than lplessons.substack.com? <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so let me touch on a few things here. So uh, you, you, I, I think you mentioned twice now, like the, the idea of real estate being a safe asset class. Uh, I probably hear this at least once a week from people that are way wealthier than I am. And on the one hand, that blows my mind. On the other hand, I, I have like a real dialogue with them. Like they'll tell me, hey, the, the, I feel like this is a really safe investment and a pretty solid way for me to make 15%. So what I tell them is, can you, can you see a path where it won't be safe? And, and most times, Andy, uh, the answer is not really. Like, I don't think I can lose money because it's an asset. And if something goes wrong, I can sell it. To which, I, of course, I, I, I just continue the dialogue. And I'm like, okay. Uh, but like, what if they sell and it happens it happens to sell for less than you bought it for, and maybe it's gets sold for around you know your your debt basis, and then they start thinking and they're like, oh, so you mean to say like asset prices don't always go up? It's like, well, yes, you know, partially it depends on cap rates, partially it depends on NOI, both things could change uh, and impact you negatively. The reason why I'm telling you this is like, this is a very common, I mean, sometimes you'll hear like, well, everyone needs a place to live, so therefore it's safe, right? And and as a comment that isn't entirely false, like meaning there's demand and that, that but, but of course, you know, you and I know that like, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. One of which, as we learned, obviously, is just high leverage and, and floating rates, but but there's a bunch of other things. Uh, a quick comment on Google, <laughs> since you mentioned it. I, I always recommend people to Google uh, the GPs that are involved and understand uh, whether they've been involved in anything that they should know about. And and honestly, I always say like 50% of the time, there's nothing wrong with lawsuits, by the way, like they're part of business, but but sometimes you'll see lawsuits like right there on Google second result that are pretty big and potentially questioning you know the like the the ethical nature of the gp uh at which point again i think of this as investments right risk reward so like your risk just went up because of the execution variable 
does something else compensate for it? Are, are you willing to take on that additional risk of this article or lawsuit being true? Maybe it's false, but, but you should at least know that it's, it's a thing. Uh, another thing you mentioned is, you know, just this pretty prolific, to be honest, idea that like a W-2 worker uh, will get, you know, their uh, other doctor friends, dentist friends, attorney friends, sales friends, I don't know, like, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I think there's probably one of these for every field. In principle, I have zero pro I have zero problems with that. I think it's great because it like exposes more people to the idea of real estate investing and those benefits. Where I start to have a problem is when incentives are misaligned. So, so the question is always, what is that person doing? Many times they're not actually buying the property themselves. They are like putting together a fund that essentially becomes like a fund of funds that goes, or a special, you know, SPV that goes into the ultimate GP's uh, equity position, right? Either on the GP side as a co-invest on the GP, or or more often. Uh, as LP capital. Where I think this goes a little bit haywire is like you 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 always as the as the ultimate LP, right? In other words, there's like there's the GP and then in between us is like the, the person that you're speaking to and then you're like over here. And and the question is like what value is this middle person bringing to me? If you feel like the value is really there, then fine. If you feel like they've properly vetted the deal and then they have the experience to do so, um, and the compensation that they're receiving for your capital, which they often do, and many times it's not disclosed, then fine, no problem. But but where things go wrong, and I've I've actually advised on a few cases like this recently, where someone invested through a fund of funds, and uh, now like the GP is in distress, the ultimate GP. And the fund of funds is essentially just pointing fingers. Like, we, we don't know what to do. Like, we're not in control. But, but we're not in control, but we still need you to fund the capital call. And it's due on Friday. But we haven't really talked to the GP and we don't know what the plan is. <laughs> so, so that's like, that's uh, a pretty real additional risk layer because you're one step removed, uh, one additional step removed from the GP. Um, and again, uh, if, if if you feel like you're getting the benefit of of whatever fees and potentially double promote and etc cetera, etc cetera, that you're paying, uh, then great. But also don't be clueless and assume that like people are just doing this for free. That happens a lot. I have seen it personally. So yeah, there's some interesting ones that I've I've had a a, a backseat to watch sort of disintegrate. Um, <laughs> not as an investor, thank God, but uh, just through the being surrounded by real estate people 24 seven, it is a, uh, it's a mess. And it's amazing to me how many people will invest with someone who has zero ownership stake in the success of the property or of the syndication. You're giving these people tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars in some case. And the guy you're trusting to make this go has zero incentive after acquisition to make it work why are you giving them money and i would say uh, i would just add one more thing not just incentive but control like those two are different things in other words um someone might have an incentive through like a piece of the promote of of the gp or you know something or maybe perhaps they take some of your proceeds as an lp but incentives don't 
really matter in downside scenarios. What really matters is like, can you actually do anything? And in 99% of cases, fund of funds are completely helpless. This is like getting technical, but like manage your removal clauses and like, what do you do? And, and by the time you can do anything, it's usually too late, uh, which actually uh, another thing I wanted to just comment on is lawsuits. Um, you know, w- when things do disintegrate, I think people have this idea that, you know, look, if, if something goes really haywire, I'm just going to sue the hell out of these people. Yeah, not legal advice and I'm not an attorney, but just from from what I've seen, this is much harder than, than people think it is. I think if someone wants to sue, just to sue, no problem, right? Um, but but you have to keep in mind that generally speaking, the probability of monetary benefits out of a lawsuit are pretty small when you consider the fact that like by the time that your property is doing not well, there's also a chance that the GP is not doing well. And if the GP is not doing well, like there's not much money to pay you, they can just file bankruptcy. There's so many different things. And, and obviously anyone can sue, but really what matters is like, what is the probability of you winning uh, actual dollar amounts? And, and, may, and unfortunately, in many cases, when, when things go south, like the answer to that is zero. Yeah. Blood from a stone. That's a... Uh, More or less. Yeah. A very real result in a lot of this. And, and if you're only in for 50, 80, 100,000... What are you going to spend on legal fees unless you can somehow figure out how to class action it or something and split costs between multiple claimants? Like, where is the capital to, to support that going to come from? Because it's probably not going to come from the sale of the building, right, or of the property. And I mean, it's a mess and it sucks because people are being, you know, in some cases taken advantage of. In some cases, it's um, just getting in trouble for being dumb money. Like, you just don't understand the, the, the nature of the beast that you got yourself into. Yeah, you know, and, and this is a whole it's probably a whole topic but just quickly i think there's obviously a delicate balance between like what a gp has to disclose and how much they need to the responsibility right what what are the responsibilities of a gp and the responsibilities of an lp like this is a very interesting in my opinion ethical discussion and i'll just give you one example like recently i spoke to someone who invested in a ground up development and the deck said that there's an 8% pref. And the guy just assumed it's current. So like a quarter in, he's like, hey, like, where's my first dividend? I was expecting it to like pay something. Like he like meaning he was gonna take that money and use it for, for personal needs. And the GP just kind of looked at him and was like, Are you like crazy? Oh, in a nice way, obviously, but he was like, This is a development. This money is accruing and we'll pay it to you eventually. Uh, or current when we can, but like you're looking at a piece of land, there's no cash, right? So in in circumstances like that, it's it's interesting because it's like, well, I think that's like an LP's responsibility at that point. Uh, but you could also say maybe the GP's deck could have been a little bit more clear, right? So it's, it's like it's a very interesting discussion. Yeah, just in that case, you know, as a real estate guy, I. I look at that and I go, of course, it's a piece of land. It's not going to cash flow, right? Because I've, I've been around construction my entire life. I know how construction loans work. I know how they structure those. I know how the inspection cycle goes. You're not getting paid because there ain't no draws. Like, there's nothing happening right now. Yeah. There's no, no cash flow of any kind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but I, I think the, the question of responsibility is interesting. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. because to, to an extent, you, you can say, well, DLP should have known. What were you thinking? Right is is one approach, and another approach is like, well, the deck wasn't entirely clear. 
You know, they could have said, yeah, it's 8% PREF, but here's what we're planning to pay in terms of cash flows. You know, so it's 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 a balance. And and look, I I ran a 20-person team that made, I mean, we probably looked at, I don't even know, 30, 40 deals a week. And like many of those ended up being investment memos. Then I can tell you like every single deck had some sort of mistake. You know, just like, like little things, formatting things or whatever. Like it, it's difficult to produce a lot of stuff. And many times you're in a rush and there's nothing wrong with that. You, you come to investment committee and you discuss and it might be 90% done. And that's better than waiting a few more days, but having it 100% done. Yep. And that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. But, but then it sort of falls on, in, in, in back in my day, it was like the investment committee, including myself, uh, questioned some of the things inside. And now it, in our case, what we're discussing, it would be the LPs. Like you need to ask like, hey, is this 8% starting immediately? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of assumptions and gray areas, I think, because when you're in it and you're working it all the time, it's just second nature that, oh, yeah, well, I'm not going to see a penny of that until there's actually, you know, somebody occupying the property. Right. That just goes without saying for us. Yeah. But, you know, for a doctor or a dentist or a, an airline pilot, they have no idea. Hopefully they read the fine print in the, the 144 page contract that they signed. Maybe not. Most of them probably didn't, unfortunately. And if they did read it, they're not lawyers, so they probably couldn't translate most of it yeah. into English anyway, right? To your point, many of them don't read it. I think it's a really good idea to read it, just at least for an educational perspective, other than just you're signing up for a contract. But what's a little bit more scary to me is sometimes they've actually used attorneys and the attorneys, I mean, they probably read it, but they didn't catch like the completely off market terms in some certain circumstances. And that, that makes you wonder, like, if the LP can't catch something, and I'm not talking about the acquisition fees, 3% instead of 2%. I'm talking about like 6% or in some cases higher I've seen. And, and again, nothing wrong with that. But at least going into it, you should know like, hey, I'm kind of paying a high acquisition fee, but I'm okay with that because X, Y, and Z, no problem. But but the reality is many LPs got into stuff not understanding that. And and the attorneys who I think should be seeing a lot of these things and presumably know what market is also don't know. So I, the way that I like to describe it is a typical LP, a client of mine is like a dentist sitting in, in his like, you know, lunch break room, looking at a deck, calling me like, hey, is this market? Is this market? And And without me, perhaps there's a few other doctors sitting around the room and they're discussing it amongst themselves but but their purview so to speak is, is, is very limited to other things that they've seen um and and that that's interesting you know because when you don't see a lot of different deals you're not really sure what's market so it's like well who cares about the six percent like I, I don't even know if that's market or not let's move on it's it's a good deal yeah if but they don't you know the guy saying that also doesn't know how to run the numbers and how to look at a pro forma or how to look at right. how a trailing 12 could possibly, if it's already existing, how a trailing 12 is going to maybe not be completely honest right off the get-go, right? Yeah. Because there's no extent, you don't get to see the extended due diligence that the GP is going to do on acquisition. You're not going to see whatever third-party property manager that comes in that's going to just use bubble gum and paint to hide all sins and try and get this thing occupied for as cheap as possible while they're pocketing the extra fees. Like I've seen all sorts of nightmares involving people coming in and saying, oh, well, it's a 2% acquisition fee. 
Well, the fine print actually says it's 2% of the total acquisition cost, including the bank funds, but not the 2% of the money coming from the LPs. They're actually taking like 10 or 12% of the LPs money because they're not taking any of the bank money. They're taking all of that capital out of the LPs. I've heard that horror story. Are you kidding me? How do they get away with that stuff? So, so acquisition fees generally are a percentage of acquisition price, like the purchase price, uh, which to your point would include the debt. Um, but but that's, that was a topic of one of my earlier posts because I think people don't understand like to your point, A, many of them think that the percent is part of equity and they just don't, I mean, they just can't, they, they, they don't learn that it's not ever. And, and another part is they just don't understand like the impact of paying, let's say, a 6% acquisition fee on uh, 80% loan to value deal is insane because like that 6% isn't really across your 20% of equity it's across the entire stack. So it's, you're actually like day one, you're in the red by a lot. You know, in some cases, like 20%, 30%. And, and of course, again, no problem with that as long as you're aware and you know that like you're in the red, but I'm going to make up for it by X, Y, and Z. And that's why I believe in the deal. I'm okay with that. But many people just from my experience just don't, don't realize that. No, I think, I think that it's a lot of oh, well, real estate's awesome, it's stable, there's an asset, I can do this, I can do that. And they don't know the rest of it because everybody's, oh, buy a house, it's stable, it'll help you build, you know, build wealth for your family and generational wealth and all this other stuff. But if you're not, if your name's not on the title or on the lien, you really don't have an asset until you do. And <laughs> some people don't know how long it takes to actually get there. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's a big investment spectrum, which is another thing that I try to remind people of. For whatever reason, sometimes people think like, if I don't invest in this, the GP is not going to contact me again. I'm too afraid to ask questions. And it's like, look, the, the worst thing is, you know, so to speak, put your money into treasuries at 5% and wait until you get the next deal or, or meet some other folks. It's okay if you miss it. Nothing will happen. And the cost of making uninformed decisions is so much more painful than, than missing a 20% IR deal and, and instead putting your money into a 15% IR deal, which is, was you know, another topic of, of mine that I wrote about. Like if, just to give you an example, like if you lose 50% of your capital and then you take that capital that you got back, in other words, you, know, you invested 500K, you got 250 back after they, you know, made some mistakes. And then you go invested at 8%, which is, you know, risky capital, right? Because it's, it's more than what you can get risk-free. In other words, it's not so simple to just get 8% without any risk over a long period of time. But let's say you can. So that needs to compound for nine years for you to just get back to your 500K. And I, I think people just don't think about that sometimes. It's like, well, it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. But sometimes it is you. And when it is you, it's like really painful. What I think people do have very right about real estate being a safe asset is that it actually should be pretty safe in a sense. In other words, if you invest correctly, the downside should be very limited because your upside is it's not limited. No one is going into real estate to 10x or 100x. Like that's a venture capital type, very speculative investment. Real estate is not meant to be that way. So if you know that your upside is capped, 
at let's say it's not capped officially but like what's on average over five years you're 2x your money like that's really good right so if you, if the the best you can do is 2x so to speak then you should you should be pretty sure that like the, the probability of you losing your money or losing a substantial amount of your money is pretty low yeah absolutely well i think again you know the last 10 years have uh, maybe 15 depending on who you talk to but zerp really crushed the ability for i guess you'd call it natural selection to do its work people with bad business models without controls without i mean i've talked to operators who haven't run a capex reserve in six years because they didn't need to because they could just get a note for three percent and finance it for nothing well those days are over so the business models that worked maybe aren't going to keep working and i i guess this is probably a good transition point because we're we're getting up on on time is the fed announcing potentially three rate cuts i personally think it's politically motivated to some extent I don't like either party. I say that on my show all the time. Uh, one side likes to stick the knife in your chest a full 12 inches. The other party likes <laughs> to stick it in your back six inches. They're both assholes. So don't trust anything because it's all about getting reelected and they don't give a crap about what really happens in the real world. So let's get that out of the way. If they do three rate cuts next year, great. People are literally like popping champagne who are specifically in real estate, specifically GPs and syndicators. And I'm going, have you guys learned nothing from the last 15 years? Like we're paying the piper now. There's so much that could possibly go wrong. And read a news report from December of 2007. This is very, very familiar to me. You know, coming like I had just exited doing stuff for a lumberyard, working with single family home builders to go to a place that was focused on DIY and single family renovations and you know, eventually turned into multifamily for me at the Home Depot. In 2007, I left in, in September and took that job, specifically seeing the writing on the wall. So I am scared right now that this irrational exuberance is going to spiral because two things can happen. Everything can work out, soft landing, great, no recession, everything picks up. And then what happens if we get hyperinflation? What happens if we see inflation start to heat up again? What happens if all of this craziness that is now costing people money pause distributions capital calls all this other stuff business plans built on a lack of understanding of fundamentals and then investors investing in those deals based off of this irrational exuberance people were about to pay the piper and have a come to jesus meeting and now they're throwing parties and drinking and it's like dude it's been three and a half hours and you're already celebrating right this is we're recording this on december 13th and I can't believe the amount of insanity I'm seeing. It's like they forgot the last 12 to 18 months of pain that they've been through. And at the end of the day, if it's three cuts, it's going to be a quarter point to one point all in. Maybe there's some opportunity there to restructure and, and make things less painful. I, I don't know that there's a way for these people who are celebrating to unbury themselves. One percent. It's a lot of money when you're talking about tens of millions of dollars. But it's 1%. I, I don't think it's going to move the needle. I don't think we're going to see 3.9% anytime in the next 18 months. But I, I don't want to prognosticate either. I just think that it's insanity based on yeah. just the last 12 months of, of crying and survive till 25. And now it's, it's a party. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, look, I'll, I'll make, uh, I'll just make two comments. So 
one, I think for the in terms of the good news, right? I think there's really two things going on. One is obviously the the rate cuts, if they do happen, I think will have a somewhat direct impact on what the banks borrow at, and therefore it should all else equal trickle down to borrowing costs to to real estate operators who are you know presumably planning to refi or need to refi or whatever. Uh, that to me, to your point, is actually. It, it's a subtle point. I, I don't see that as being very good in the grand scheme of things. It, it, I don't like it. It's certainly positive. Rates going down is helpful. I, I think what's potentially uh, a bigger theme at play is just people getting more comfortable with risk. So, so what has happened, especially in the lending world over the past year and a half, is lenders are just so uncertain about the future that the spreads got to a point where like you effectively just couldn't get a loan to make anything make sense. Now, I think what will happen on top of lowering rates is is the fact that at some point you'll see uh, a tightening uh, of that of that spread and therefore things will become even more affordable, right? Um and and that I think combined with the lower rates actually could have a pretty deep effect in terms of you know, the securitization markets, CMBS markets, like people will sort of uh, lack of a better word is like come back to play, you know, where where everyone else until now has been, you know, on vacation <laughs> more or less, uh, pr- pretend lending, if you will. So those two are the kind of the good news. The bad news is like uh, as as I always like to say, um, you know, I, I think any GP or LP for that matter, unless perhaps you're you know an economist yourself or something, I, I just don't think the real estate game is is a game of predicting rates. Certainly, it impacts the business. Uh, certainly, you should sensitize to understand how things could impact your investment, uh, both for the good and the bad. But if you're getting into a, a rate-sensitive bet, at some point, I mean, this sounds brutal, but it's like at some point, you might as well just go trade rates. Like, why play rates through real estate? Uh, go trade rates. <laughs> if you If you are so convinced that something... Uh, is going to happen. Take that bet and and make more money with it. <laughs> you know, seriously, it would make a lot of people a lot happier compared to some some of the insanity that I've seen for the last couple of years. And now all of a sudden, it's like they're they're drinking champagne. I'm like, are you guys out of yeah, your minds? Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I they've think, learned nothing. I think part of it is you know they just had like a rough 18 months. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, but but enough. to your point, you know, I think there's like uh, probably a balance. Um, you know, to not over celebrate. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in the conservative underwriting and the numbers having to work. Yeah. And if everything, if the only way a deal works is if everything goes right, the deal's never going to work. Yeah. Like, that's how I look at everything. Like, when, when I do any type of money lending on storage or whatever, I want to see the business plan. Like, the asset's great, but I have the asset, mm-hmm. right? I want to see the business plan to make it worth more, so I make sure I'm not going backwards. Yeah. And if the numbers make sense and you pay me on time, I'm yeah. happy. Like, it's, it's not rocket science. Yeah, makes sense. I guess... We've covered a ton of stuff, and thank you so much because this is huge, and I have learned more, like my brain actually hurts now. (laughs) My question, I guess there's two of them. The first one is, what haven't we touched on that you would like to touch on? I want, first of all, in a a minute, we'll get to how people can find you, email you, we'll talk about the Mm -hmm. Substack again, but GPs, where should they be? Because I know you've done a bunch of, specifically very recently, 
advisory for GPs, putting together decks, putting together capital calls, doing all of this stuff. What should they be trying to do other than don't be shady, don't be a scammer, don't promise things you can't deliver? Like, what should they be doing right now? I think the best answer to that is just be transparent. You know, um, the, the worst thing that can happen to a GP, in, in my opinion, is figuring out the status of your investment through someone else. I think that just sort of discredits the GP. And I, I think if you're transparent and you communicate well, like I, I can't tell you how many capital calls I've seen that essentially say, you know, I, I even tweeted about this and some people thought it was a joke, but it's not. Like capital call templates nowadays are essentially like, hey, everything is going great. Happy holidays. And then the second sentence is, we need some more money for this project. The third sentence is, we're putting together a plan uh, of how we're going to use this money and we'll send it to you over the next month. And then the last sentence is, here are the wiring instructions you have until Friday or you'll be diluted. Goodbye. And it's like, wow, like seriously? Like how, how did you even come up with that? And now, you know, partially, I think, like a lot of this is sort of like last minute decision-making. People are freaking out. Perhaps they don't have enough information, you know, in the case of like fund to funds and stuff. Like th there's a lot of things that could happen. But at the end of the day, communicating well and communicating early, I think will go a long way, especially during challenging times. I, I don't disagree. A big red flag for me, too, is when they point the finger immediately to a property manager. Oh, the property manager screwed me or the property manager is mismanaging. We're going to fire them and we're going to replace them. Okay, well, cool. But who's in charge of making sure that they're doing their job? And how do you know the next guy is not going to do the same thing? Like, I'm not a big fan of the finger pointing and the blame, like the buck stops here kind of thing. Like you need to own it. So I've seen a lot of people not owning anything and it, and it's scary because I think those are the people who are going to end up in the lawsuits. Yep. Absolutely. The next and, and final thing, Alexi, thank you so much for the time you've taken. Where can people find you? And what is your overarching message for the audience, for anybody looking to invest in a syndication or do, do any type of, of business deals in this environment right now when we're seeing kind of the worst of the worst float to the surface? Because it's always the, the worst stories that make the news, right? And it's never that, that the happy stuff or the stuff that worked out. It's, or may, you know, maybe this isn't going great, but it should be okay. That, that won't make the news. It's the, the nightmare scenario where everything is on fire and people are just losing their butts and getting zero back. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say broad statement is um, if A, you don't know how to do diligence properly or don't have time for it, uh, I don't think you should be investing. And I mean, I'll, I'll stand behind that all day. In terms of the, the point that I'm trying to make, you always have to take a step back. There's two ways to view everything. In other words, on the one hand, there's like blood on the street, so to speak, right now. On the other hand, um, there are truly some great opportunities that I'm seeing once in a while. And, and for those opportunities, like you have to have capital available, you have to be active, you have to know some GPs if you want to invest as an LP. And that's pretty important, you know, to get yourself out there and, and, and just not feel like you have to invest in the first deal that you see. You know, like nothing will happen if you say no politely. And also, like, just one last thing is you mentioned, you know, only some things come on the news, right? And I actually have a pretty 
interesting opinion on this. I think what you see on the news is a GP X, Y, and Z uh, gave back their properties to the bank. Okay. What you don't see, what I see, the LP who calls me and says, Hey, I invested a million dollars into this. I don't really understand what this notice is about some capital call. Like, what does that mean? And A, I have to explain to them what a capital call means, which isn't, you know, my favorite thing to do. But B, once I like look into the information, I also have to explain to them that the existing position is worthless. And 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 of course, going back to our conversation earlier, it's like, well, what do you mean worthless? Like it's an asset. Can't you just sell it? Like, you know, and and you you're forced to have this conversation. So the, the reality, I think the reason why I'm telling you this is like the reality is both ways. Like you you don't see a lot of like great publication about, hey, like I invest as an LP, you know, let's say I invested in 10% of the deals that I see. I'm very selective. And here's my returns over a long period of time. Um, here are GPs that are good. Like, like you, you, there's nothing out there. It's like an extremely opaque space in terms of like the good news and the bad news, right? So that that's sort of like the the world, at least that I'm trying to address is like to make the space a little bit more transparent in, in terms of where to find me. You know, I have a pretty unique name. I don't think it's that difficult. I mean, I, I write probably most consistently on Twitter and Substack. Twitter is like more short form. Um, Substack is more long form. I would recommend people check out like the top 15 syndication mistakes article as a, as a first start. And if anyone wants to email me, it's just my first name at hey.com. I'd say at hey.com. Um, and just educate yourself. Please, like, you know, like, it doesn't have to be through me. It can be through books, something. Just just don't, you know, make investment mistakes after spending so much effort in saving money. Yeah, you've earned the money. Make the money work for you. Yeah, actually, just, sorry, just really quickly, you just made me remember something. Like, I think accredited investor status is something that I have, like, a strong opinion on. I think it sometimes gives people this false illusion of being an investor. Uh, and it's not that they're not, like they do have this status, right? but they might not know anything about investing. And what I found at least through my work is generally speaking, the same traits that make someone really wealthy can actually translate to like pretty bad behavior on the investing side because you take risks. But notice that when, when you're taking risks in an operating business, it's risks that you, A, you control and B, you sort of like, uh, at least somewhat understand, right? Because you're in this business. Uh, and, and then they sort of take that similar risk behavior, uh, risk-taking behavior to like LP investments. And they start like YOLOing a, a, across a bunch of deals. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't end well. You know, so in, in some sense, this is kind of strange, but I, I, I have this theory that uh, like almost the same character traits that make you really wealthy can actually like make you lose a lot of your money. I don't disagree with that. Alexi Chernobelsky, thank you so much for coming on the TCO Method. I do appreciate your time. I want to do this again at some point. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure, Andy. Thank you so much for having me on. Anything we can do to, to get the word out about your Substack, about what you're doing for LPs and GPs, it's hugely important, hugely valuable. Nobody else is out there doing it and beating the drum like you are. It is absolutely needed. I know that there's some people out there who are very cranky that you're doing it. I am not one of those people because I think that there has to be objectivity in business and the numbers have to work. And if you 
can't make the numbers work, there's no reason to do the deal. Everybody out in Radioland or on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a comment if you're on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please make sure you subscribe. Leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Five stars is great. If you're going to leave me one star, at least send me an email and tell me why. Somebody on Apple left me a one-star review and didn't leave any comments. And that just makes me sad. (laughs) Anyway, thank you everybody for tuning in. Until next time, 